Bible reading tonight. Um, we'll be reading from the book of Genesis, and we'll be reading all the way through chapter 14. Um, it's on page 12 of your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along in the book. <clears throat> At the time when Amphrael was king of Shinar, Arioch king of el Lassar, Kedalomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shememba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedalomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedalamar and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in the Ashtaroth, Karanaim, the Zurites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh, Kiriatim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedalamar, king of Elam, title king of Goyim, Amphrael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedalamar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out the bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn on oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten, and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. I'll now invite Jeff up. Lord, seven. 
<laughs> this is a big one. <laughs> I'll just pray for you, Jeff. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for blessing us with your word so that we can learn more about you and everything that you want to teach us. I also thank you for Jeff and the gift of understanding your word and of teaching others about it. Um, I pray that you will speak through him tonight um, to all those who have ears to hear. Um, may you open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us tonight. I pray all these things in your mighty name, Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, yes, I've just got to change microphones here. It's, um, very good. Okay, does that sound okay? Is that good? <clears throat> this is uh, a passage that um, you wouldn't think. I mean, it's it's all a boys' own annual stuff, isn't it? It's it's full of. Uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, swashbuckling sort of action and, and that sort of thing. But really there is some profound theology here and a lot of that swashbuckling action you have to get through so you can understand the profound theology at the end of the, uh, of the book. This is a, a story that's quite deliberately constructed to be uh, saying some profound things. as basically two histories in collision here. Um, <clears throat> the history of the world and the history of God's man, Abraham, uh, in which we uh, enjoy the fruits uh, today as people of promise. There are two battles and two particular kings. And uh, uh, so we're, we're living in a story where there's two things happening at once. And I've uh, got a couple of slides here tonight that might just um, help clarify the dimensions of this story. First one being a, a map of the area, of the whole area. As we step back and look, um, there is a map of the whole area. <laughs> as we, <laughs> um, is that going to work? There we go. Um, <clears throat> now that's not all that clear, but it's. Uh, if you look over on the right, you see the red um, towns there. There's Elam, uh, Shinar, <clears throat> uh, where the that uh, that temple of, uh, was built at Ziggurat that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Golem and Elisar and they're, they're, that, that's the country from which Abram had come originally. <clears throat> but what had happened through the years is that along that river, the two rivers of Tigris and Euphrates, <clears throat> different city-states would be, get ascendancy. And at the time when we read this, there's this fellow, Kedlarar, who's king of Elam. And uh, his name is actually a statement of his own god who uh, he sees supports him. And uh, so this is the other thing we've got to take into account is that when we read these stories of conflict and warfare, they're, they're both military conflicts, political conflicts, but they're also religious conflicts. And when you get a victory, you claim it for your God. Your God was responsible, really. You were the puppet on the end of the strings, but he was pulling the strings in heaven. And so this is very much a religious story uh, about the theology that's happening. And just like Abram had um, left that part of the world and headed up between the highway between the Tigris and the Euphrates and then come down the north past Hobar and Damascus, um, 
So this army does. We're talking about a journey uh, minimum that's about the same distance as from Melbourne to Brisbane. And so this army heads off and they would have had to carry everything with them. Uh, it's a massive entourage that is head, headed off towards the Holy Land and they come down and what has happened, as you read, um, or as it, no, you didn't read it, uh, Maddie read it so well <laughs> that uh, the, uh, <coughs> these kings over this side, maybe they'd heard a bit of news that there's a bit of instability over here in the presidential suite of Elam. And so they take the opportunity not to pay their taxes, their tribute to that king that year. And it's just a couple of them, but a, a king like that can't let a thing like that go. You know, if he lets these couple of cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and their kings, uh, Bera and Bersha, if he lets them go, then what's going to happen? The, the next couple of city king, petty kings, will take opportunity. And very soon, you see, this fellow, he's not just king over there. At this stage, he controls the whole trade route right down through Palestine to the Red Sea and across into Egypt to Zone. And so if he lets one town go, he, he loses his trade route. And so he just takes off and he, he starts coming down through these towns, through Ashtaroth and Ham and Sheva and, and just thumps them as he goes through. And just let that be a warning to you and picks up his supplies for the next... So he has really got a, a large force with him, I think, at this time. We're not sure how many, but in the thousands. And that's the nature of this uh, battle that eventually leads to the battle of nine kings, his four against five over here, including the green guys, uh, Adma, Sodom, Bela, Gomorrah and Zeboim, those city-states. They get together and their kings are, um, are fighting. It's interesting <clears throat> that so much... Uh, uh, we miss because we're not in that culture but also we don't speak their language but like the names Beer and Brisha are um, really derivatives of their make for wickedness <laughs> and uh, that's uh, their, probably their, their, their nicknames in a way but those political histories uh, we infer if you're a reader in that stage well we get to pay chapter, um, chapter we get to verse 8 and uh, all these towns have been flattened and so now it's like a last-ditch stand and they get to that salt plain of Sidon that you would have seen a couple of weeks ago and, uh, and they decide to finally have the final battle and they draw out their battle lines and it really doesn't go well. We can have a look at uh, the next um, couple of slides. And so what has happened is that these four kings in blue have come in from the top down through here. They've gone all the way down, about from Melbourne to Adelaide, down to uh, defeat a, site, a, a town at three, right down on the uh, Al Paran, down on the uh, Red Sea, and across to Kadesh, uh, and then through the desert region again and back up. They're going up the Jordan River Valley again, and they run into this skirmish. This, uh, this writer thought that somewhere around the green section, I think it was probably on the left side of the Dead Sea there, that Salt Sea, the left top side is probably where this battle happened. Uh, best because today, if you put your drone over it, um, you'll see this. And it just looks like 
barren, flat place full of these bitumen pits. Now, they were valuable things in those days because bitumen was used to seal houses and boats, stick things together, a very valuable commodity. And this is where they're threshing it out. And what has happened is that the five kings of Sodom and that, these, these petty kings, they've been defeated. And as they run, you know, looking over the back, back of their, you know, in, in sheer terror, a lot of their men just fell into these, these pits and met a sticky end. And that's the nature of this uh, battle, and it's been a complete rout. Um, and then, out of this, is where our hero comes back into the story. In verse 13, we read that <clears throat> one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. He runs up in this hill country where Abram is living by the Oaks of Memory. Who was living by the Oaks of Memory, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and Anah. These were allies of Abram. Now, it's just a little thing, but it's an important thing. It's fascinating that here Abram is for the first time called Abram the Hebrew. We might think, oh, that's because in Jesus' time they're called the Hebrews or they spoke Hebrew. But in this time, the important thing is that to be called a Hebrew was basically a derogatory term that stuck. And Abram the Hebrew, it's like us saying, Abram the Bogan. That's really what it meant. He wasn't that impressive. I mean, you know, from now on, it, it's not far wrong. If you ever read about Abram, you just envisage a guy with a good mullet and a flannelette shirt and uh, a nice set of socket sets. But uh, that's, uh, that's Abram. And that's the sort he was thought of by the people he lived with. He was a man of no name. It's quite a derogatory term. And uh, so this guy hears that the battle's gone badly, but then he heard that his kinsman, that's Lot, his nephew, has been taken captive. And so, without further ado, he just says, that's not right. Uh, now, he's sat and he's watched that battle probably. He's heard all the stories. He's seen this happening for months as township and city has fallen under the heel of the great emperor from Elam, Kelleramar. And now he has a reason to get involved. He hasn't seen himself as some sort of warrior for right and wrong and going to change the culture of the world, but you touch a lot and you're touching part of the holy family tree. And he still has aspirations that Lot might turn out okay despite his compromised life and his way of living and his merger into this place of Lot. We read in that perverse that Lot was living um, in that uh, city that we saw last week of Sodom. But Abram just heads off immediately with 318 trained men, a light infantry. These people all had their own sword. Now that itself is a statement of his wealth. In that culture, only one in ten families would own a sword in this era. So that's quite a significant thing. And it says something about the sort of society he's living in that this guy with all this... He wasn't born into wealth, he's accumulated wealth uh, that is built up, now needs to protect it with his own hand-picked militia. And they're all armed, and we don't know how they travelled, but he pursues this army that has abducted uh, all the people from Sodom and Gomorrah and taken all their wealth, and they must have been heavy, and they're travelling slowly with their camels, with their donkeys, with whatever carts they had, 
And they're moving back up the Jordan River and uh, Abram decides that's enough. And immediately he starts to head after them and he makes great strides. We're talking about a pursuit that went uh, probably about 180 kilometres until he got up into the upper regions of the Golan Heights where the Six-Day War was finally definitively won in 67. Let's look at the next um, slide after that, after the one of my... Uh, there we go. And he descends off the Golan Heights at a place called Tel Dan. This is a, uh, a photograph in the First World War of Dan. And you can see, basically, and I'll show you the next one too, because this is significant in Australia's history. This is a, a picture painted by an artist who was actually there. It's in the War Memorial in Canberra. And there's, if you look closely and your eyes are particularly acute, you'll see some Aussie soldiers. And that's how high they are above the river down the bottom. And this is a very narrow neck. It's called Barada Gorge. And the Battle of Barada Gorge in the First World War in September was the decisive battle that uh, rid uh, the Middle East of the, the uh, Axis forces of Turkey and Germany. And uh, the next slide, you'll see after the battle, um, this is the, the luggage that the German and Turk forces left that the Aussies won. And they were undermanned and they used exactly the same strategy. They pushed up behind these guys in the valley and descended upon them from above. They offered them armistice, but they refused and the carnage was massive. Then, like Abram, they followed the same strategy and they pursued these troops right out of that gorge, 100 kilometres to Damascus. Uh, it's amazing that they used exactly the same strategy that this undermanned bogan from Mamre had used you know, three and a half thousand years earlier. It's amazing. But uh, that's the advantage that Abraham had and he, Abram had, and he descends upon them and then pushes them out of the territory so they won't be a trouble for any more time. He then heads back with all this massive baggage of people and beasts of burden and all the looting that had gone in all those cities. You can see what's happening in each week. Abram is building up a mass of wealth and power and prestige. This is happening bit by bit. And he gets home and among Imagine what it would have been like to return home to this place and the king of Sodom is there and, and, and they would have thought, these people have gone. I mean, Kedalaramah has crushed city after city, fortified city after fortified city. They thought their kids and their wives and their livestock and their gold was gone for all money. And then they hear them coming and news spreads and the king of Sodom is still alive and he manages to make it up into the high country. We have a meeting between Abram and two kings, two figures that are very important theologically, especially the first one. And there's a wonderful painting called The Return of the Victor, which uh, painted by uh, a Dutch artist in about 1700. That's not it. That's it. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I think this is one of the best because most religious painting of that era, if you wanted an art, art lecture, you're going to get it, um, uh, was very uh, stylized and religious. Everyone looked like a saint um, and uh, most un, unauthentic. It's amazing. This guy actually got it right. 
This is a mass of people. It's messy. And it's in a style that hadn't been invented yet. This ink sketch with wash wasn't how you painted. And you can see all these people were sorting out all the baggage. It must have been incredible chaos. You know, it's like unpacking my daughter's bedroom. It's just amazing. And uh, then in the middle, you see Abram on the right bowing. And there's uh, a religious figure sort of doing this and blessing them. In the second line, can you see that? And there's a nice tray with some cordial on it and some nibblies uh, just for Abram. And that's the picture out of these scenes here. It's exactly what we're expecting. Now, let's look at this figure, king number one, Melchizedek. I mean, his name is just two Semitic words put together. Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. That's his name. And uh, uh, it may have something to do with his ethics. Um, But he brings out this tray with wine and bread. Now, that's not going to go far with that crowd, is it? But he brings it out for Abram. Because this guy, he wants to make covenant with this figure who he understands is incredibly significant. He must be significant in the upstairs economy of heaven to pull off a stunt like defeating the four kings of Babylon and Elam, all those places. To defeat the empire means he is the king of kings, this Abram. And he... His name means king of righteousness. His realm is a place called Uri Salem, city of Salem. And Bogan's pronounced it Jerusalem. That's how it got got its name. And uh, he is in a sacred town. This town of Uri Salem was regarded like a Vatican city. It was a place where religion really mattered. Uh, We'll get onto what religion. And his posture is he comes out as like the senior priest, as the, the, the high guy, meeting a junior. But he recognised Abram as one of his own and he wants to make a covenant with this one because there's no way you can explain what this guy has done except the God of heaven be with him. That's what he's saying. This guy is not just brilliant, he is blessed. And that's what... Melchizedek has put together. So inside his head, if we could get inside Melchizedek's head, by his calculation, a bogan can only become the king of kings with a little help from on high, the blessing of heaven. And he thinks to himself, who has the power over all the gods of all the kings? Now this fellow, he's a pagan. He's not a Christian. He's not a Jew. He's a pagan. He is a Canaanite believer and he has a pantheon of gods, little gods and ranks of gods. And at the top of it, the top god is a god called El Elyon, the god over all. This is his god. And he realises that the only god that could have done this is El Elyon. Now, it's a curious thing that Abram accepts the blessing from this guy. This fellow comes up and he says in verse 19, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He puts a blessing on Abram by the highest God he can see. 
And then he turns and he blesses that God. He says in 20, And blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies out of into your hand. It has to be his doing. See, this guy may not be monotheistic, but he is theistic. I think it's best to think of his religion like an Anzac Day religion. It's a civil religion. It's a religion that is built on uh, the belief that God has shown himself. It's very much what Paul talks about, and I think we need the categories of the New Testament about revelation. Not the book of revelation, but the doctrine of revelation. This guy worships God through observing nature and what happens in history, and he deduces truths about God. Abram worships God personally by special revelation. He's actually met God. He also has general revelation, as Romans 1.19 says. <laughs> and it's, um, I've put some bad words in the middle of it. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. That's the whole world, believers, unbelievers. God speaks through his creation, his nature, his actions in history. It's a form of speech. It really is God speaking. Don't underestimate it. God, what can be known about is God to them because God has shown it to them. What's he showing? That's my word. Shown what? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You don't have to have special spectacles to be able to see this is God's world. He actually communicates. There is not an ignorant human being on the face of the planet. Our God is a speaking God and he speaks through what he's made. And he will hold every person in the world accountable to what they have clearly perceived. Don't let anyone tell you that God's unjust because some people never heard the gospel. That's not the basis upon which they're going to be judged. They're judged upon the fact that they haven't been responsible with what they have perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, that's a way back, in the things that have been made, even the incidents God can speak through. So what's Abram doing by accepting this? You know, I think he's basically saying, buddy, Melchizedek, the principle you revere is the God I know and fear. And so what is Abraham doing? It reminds me of a trivial illustration years ago when um, I was a pastor and we used to have a church mixed netball team, much like... Um, Res has, and on a Monday night we'd play down at the new sports centre that was built in our area. And I remember coming home one night and the, the dial on the petrol was a little bit low and I thought, I bet it must fill up the tank. And I got in, got out of my car, shoved the uh, thing in the side of the car, what do you call it? Um, squeezer thing, <laughs> gone. Um, and uh, I looked up and I looked in and there was the row of people coming up to the cash register and there was this fellow at the cash register and he had remember the era of headphones with music in those big things you could buy they you know? anyway people used to listen to music in their head and uh, this guy was there and literally he was jiving and he was going like this as he served the people and I thought oh goody this is my kind of guy and uh, let's see what happens here and anyway I filled the tank put the thing in got as much petrol out as I could I went in I stood in the line and gradually moved up pulled out my wallet and I said, how much do I owe you? And uh, he said, it's such and such. And I went through, 
the visa card was missing. And suddenly I panicked and people behind are going like this and I'm feeling the pressure. And I said, uh, uh, look, this is an accident. I, I really intend to pay, but uh, what do we do in this occasion? He said, don't worry, man, that's cool. And he's just driving away and he's... And I said, oh, well, do I leave my watch or my address, uh, one of my children? Uh, what is it? And uh, uh, he said, basically, uh, man, man, don't, don't worry, that's cool. What do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor of the church just around the corner, if that's of any use. And, and he said, oh, really? You, you really believe that stuff? And he started talking and I started talking. People are really getting interested in that. They're fascinated. Amazing Australians are fascinated by theology. And, and I, I discovered that this guy was um, actually Jewish and he was walking, move, working his way around Australia pumping gas. And uh, we talked about it. And he said, what's it like being a pastor? And I said, oh, it's, well, it's... It's the best job I've ever had. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, anyway, um, look, uh, you just go and get your card, man. It'll be cool. So I said, right. I only live about 10 minutes away and shot home. And I went into the house and uh, sure enough, my wife had borrowed the visa card to go shopping. I said, that's cool. (laughs) And and so I I got the visa card. I said, pray for me because I have a funny feeling I'm going to get into a real conversation with this guy. And, um, and they, they did, and I went back, and by the time I got back, the line had gone. It, was that, and it took about half an hour to get back, and, and you know, it was a quiet time of the evening, and I thought, oh, good, we'll get and have some good chat. As we're talking, um, I'm saying, uh, you know, what do you believe? And I found out that his mother was into this Kabbalistic Jewish sect, and, you know, and uh, it was really quite a uh, strange sort of belief, and... But I'm talking about you know what I know about Judaism and that sort of thing and where Christianity differs. And, and he just sort of cut across me right at that point. And he said, look, I've got a problem with you. And I thought, and I thought what's that? He said, uh, if you really, and these are his words, if you really thought you were serving God most high, you could never call it a job. I have to admit, at that stage in life, I was thinking about greener pastures and looking for a new call. Right that minute, I knew that that guy had spoken better than he realised. And the Lord certainly wanted us to have a conversation, but he wanted to say something to me through this guy, as imperfect as his theology was. And I was riveted. I knew I'd been spooked and spoked and uh, needed to listen. And you see, that's what's happening with Abram. He's not necessarily saying, hey, polytheism's cool. He's saying, if I don't acknowledge that this victory is wrought by God, I'm saying I'm a self-made man. And I don't want the world to see that. And so Abram accepts the blessing and he takes, and the word just means a portion of all that he had and he gives it as a gift to this guy. And it's a way of saying that I acknowledge that all that I have and all that I am is because of God's sovereign goodness that has the last and the first say over my life. And folks, that's what happens when we come to worship. 
the very fact that you're here tonight is a militant statement to the world. You could be doing anything. You could be watching SBS or what have you, Netflix. You could be down consuming vast quantities of pizza. Whatever you do on a Sunday night, whatever people... But you're not. You're here. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a militant statement that there is another tune and another piper being played in this universe. And you'd rather be here. But also, when we're invited to do the offering, when you do that simple act... You're not trying to say, well, I do that because I was told in church membership classes that we should give a tenth, and I don't really want to, but it's a tenth. It's not a legalism, and it's not magic. It doesn't make God love you and then bless you more, even though you might hear that on Christian television. It's simply because you want to say to God, I acknowledge your goodness and all that I have All that I am is all you're doing. And that's what we're saying here. And that's what Abram's saying. Our offerings aren't fees for service. Our offerings aren't a subscription to a club. They are militant gestures of acknowledgement where we say to God, I'd still be doing this if you're the only person looking. Now, the nature of Christian life is that, you know, as a pastor, I have never, and I make it a principle, I have never asked the church for money. We've had budgets going out backwards. I've never asked the church for money because that is not my job. It's not to raise the subs. It's to cause you to take your God seriously as the God who is over all. And if this, if this bogan and this pagan can get it right, then so can we. And Paul gets it right when he comes to Romans 12, that great passage, and he says this. He explains the gospel in the first 11 chapters and then he comes to his clinch point. So then what? Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, in light of all that God has done that's grace in your life. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What he means by body is not just your skeletal structure. Your body is your identity. It's who you are in the world. It's all your aspirations. It's all your opportunities. And you simply, as what a Christian is, is not a person who does little religious things and gives a tenth. It's a person who has given their life to God because God has given everything to them. What else can I do, says Paul? It's, it's the reasonable form of service and it's acceptable. That's what it is to be spiritual. It's for that little revolution to happen in your mind where you realise that if God is Lord over all, El Elyon, Yahweh, the one who will cause to be in my life what will be, if he calls the tune, who am I to think I have anything that is mine? And you see, that solves the budgetary problem. It's not doctrine of tithing. It's a doctrine of body life under Jesus. You know, at any time in our life, God may come a calling and he doesn't call you to give up fun. 
He doesn't call you to give up your wealth. He calls you to make him Lord over those other things, those other little gods. I had a friend in a Bible study years ago and uh, this guy, you know, we had a guy's Bible study and we talked and we prayed and this guy had gone and got himself a science degree and uh, you know, he could only get Mac jobs with it. You think it's art students. <laughs> but he, uh, he just, you know, month after month we prayed for him and he kept on putting in his application. And then finally he pulled down a job working at a major furniture um, store, a, a line that uh, had major franchises. And his job was in customer complaints. And we thought, no, that's a good start. And uh, he had to get, answer the telephone when someone had bought one of their beds or their sofas and it started to creak or fall apart. His job was to ask probing questions to find out, did you jump on the bed? Did you let your dog on the sofa? Oh, I'm sorry, you voided your contract. And he had all these out clauses. And he started to think, the guarantee was that we would replace anything with a new couch or bed or what have you. And he got troubled in his conscience about this. His first job, he didn't want to have a conscience issue. And he went into the boss, his immediate boss, one day, and he, he had these list of protocols, what you meant to say to the client. And he went into his boss and he put this down on the table. He said, I get the impression that we as a company have no intention of keeping our promise with the customer. And the boss said, well, it took you a while to work that out. And he said, yeah, but, uh, but, but... And the boss said, listen, pal, if you want to keep working here, you just keep your head down and don't bother yourself with stuff that doesn't concern you. Now get back to work. And this guy who'd been unemployed for 18 months said, well, I'm sorry, but that's not a job defrauding people and he left his job I ran into him in the city walking around Melbourne jobless to get this story two things I know this guy has a big God and his boss knows that the buck is not sovereign. There is someone on the planet who worships a God that's greater than the almighty dollar. Now that's evangelism. There's no accident that this guy is today the pastor of one of the largest churches in Australia. Why is that? Is it because of some rule that God blesses big gifts? It's the rule of the body. If we present our bodies to Jesus. At those points where the world is saying, compromise, this is the law of the universe. If we buckle up at those points, if we say, ah, brother, there's more than the cultural option here, then God says, gosh, Now, that's what I call worship. That is spiritual worship. That's the 
God we worship. Abram was as generous as he was aware of God's saving power in his life. We should be as free to be obedient as we are aware of the lengths to which El Elyon, Yahweh, went not to just rescue us, but to save us and bless us for an eternity, to put it in a position where we could not lose his favour. I hope that clarifies what it is to be a worshipper of the Almighty God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pause here tonight thanking you for your word, thanking you for this figure, thanking you for this example. But in our heart of hearts, we just want to pause to let you say to us about those little gods in our life that trouble you because they're out of the pecking order and they easily push you off the number one spot. Our Lord, whatever it is, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a particular obedience, Lord, make that grit in our shells. Make that grit in our oyster. Let us not rest until we give you back lordship of our lives. For this is acceptable because of the mercies of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.